Greetings, ghost family. Welcome to Family Ghosts. On this episode, you're going to meet Mark Pagan. Mark's a radio producer, a filmmaker, a moth-winning storyteller, and he's always been fascinated by what he calls the emblems of masculinity, how transparent they are, and how desperately men cling to them. Here's a story he told recently on his podcast, which is called Other Men Need Help. It was a Saturday night. Everybody was out. I noticed this couple that's at the corner nearby me. It's a man and a woman. They're in their early 30s. And he's standing on the curb hailing a cab. But he's doing it in this cool guy way. And what I mean by that is he's not making eye contact with the direction traffic is coming from. And he's got one thumb in his waistband. And his cab arm is like a dying plant. It's not eye-catching. I don't know if he thinks this is effective or if he just wants to look cool. Now I look over at who I assumed was his girlfriend. And I could tell that she was just done with the night. Her arms were crossed. Her feet were tapping. She took his dying plant arm and dragged it down. And she threw her arm up, locked her eyes in the road. And within 15 seconds, a cab came to the curb. It was like a PSA for effective cab gettage. And before they got in the cab, the guy did this head twist thing looking around like, did anybody see that? And I sat there going, I totally did. This week on the show... We're going to hear the story of Mark's discovery that masculinity is an invention made from weird materials. From Panoply, you're listening to Family Ghosts. I'm Sam Dingman, and this is Episode 5, Looking Good, Charlie. Our story begins in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., My earliest memories of my dad are waiting for him to come home. I'm eight years old, and I'm waiting by the door while my mom picks him up from Dulles Airport. Eventually, I hear the key in the front door, and he comes in with his suitcases, including a brand new one purchased just to bring back bootleg Nintendo games, duty-free wares for my mom, and pop cassettes for my sisters and me. I haven't seen him for months. These are the things I remember about my father. He was Puerto Rican and much older than my mom. He spent half the year overseas for work. Everyone told me, your father does international business. I still don't know what that means. When he was around, he was kind, gentle, and chose his words very diligently. But usually he wasn't around. So I was raised by my white Midwestern mother and grandmother in our house in suburban Maryland. I was surrounded by a rotating roster of older sisters, cousins, aunts, and family friends, all female. I knew how to act around women, but I really didn't know how to act around men. And so, without his father around to give him advice, Mark decided to try to figure out how men are supposed to behave on his own. 
My grandmother would do the grocery shopping every week, and she'd always bring home a copy of the cute boy mags, Tiger Beat and Bop, for my sister Lydia. Eventually, I started asking my grandmother to bring back two copies, one for Lydia and one for myself. As soon as she got home, I'd grab the magazines, go to my room, and intricately cut out posters and photos of these young hunks. Mackenzie Aston, Jason Bateman, Matt Dillon, and put them up on my wall. There was this one day when my sister Georgie sat me down and showed me Lethal Weapon. There's a scene in it where Mel Gibson gets out of bed and his bare, hairless butt is all up in the movie for five seconds. Georgie would rewind the scene over and over and scream, Deliver! Deliver! I thought to myself, when I'm older, I need to get this reaction out of a woman. That's not to say I didn't learn anything from my dad. He was always calm and so comfortable with affection. He became my handbook of masculine touch, placing his left hand on top of a handshake as the crown for respect. He would gently brush away excess hair clippings from my forehead after a visit to the barber, and his hugs were operas, beginning with an aria of caresses, gradually tightening until he'd cup his hand around the back of my head and quietly say, good night, my son. If there was a problem with his hugs, it was the hair. I'd run my hands up his forearms as I'd move them to his back, and all I can focus on is this feeling of thick, coarse hair, which seems to exist everywhere. I used to wonder, is that what it's gonna feel like to hug me when I'm older? Is that what I have to look forward to? When he'd come home from a trip, I'd try to spend as much time with him as possible. I was so excited to see him, I'd run into my parents' bathroom just when my father was getting out of the shower, leaving me at eye height to his groin, my early introduction to pubic hair. I didn't know what I was seeing, but to me it was monstrous. I was convinced that my father might have secretly been a gorilla. By the time Mark was a teenager, things had grown tense between his parents. On the rare occasions they were together, they argued a lot, and Mark began to suspect they were on the verge of getting divorced. And that was great, because I thought, maybe I could live with my dad and learn how to be a man. I'd learn Spanish, and we would live part of the time in the U.S., part of the time in South America, where I'd become a famous DJ. And my dad would teach me how to drive stick on the left side of the road and what cologne to buy and how to talk to girls. It was going to be great. And then he died. Right before high school started, my mom sat me down. I could tell she was struggling with what guidance to give me. She said, I got you a subscription to Esquire magazine and she handed me my father's shaving kit. And that was the last I heard from my dad. When his dad died, Mark lost more than his father's presence. He also lost touch with his father's version of masculinity. Mark was left with stacks of glossy fashion magazines. And at the same time, he was handed a tool for living that glossy masculine life, 
a shaving kit. This is the moment when Mark got his wires crossed. I'd go into my room and stare at my ever-expanding collage of masculinity, looking for clues. And over time, I developed a list of all the things I liked about men and wanted to be like. Mouth snarling. Loafers with no socks pressing down on the clutch of a standard transmission. Opening a bottle with a lighter for a woman and them going like, wow, with their fingers running through their hair. Men killing it in dance montages. And a virtually hairless body, except for a thin cluster around the chest, with a manicured line leading to the genitals. This had a name, the Treasure Trail. Shortly after 14-year-old Mark started high school, he met Annie. We rode the bus together. She looked like Alicia Silverstone and wore these flannel shirts. And I had to talk to her. So I went back there, I got a few words out, and she responded. And I thought, all right, whatever you do, keep her engaged. So I became a nodder. She would talk and I would nod. And this strategy was working until Chris Berkeley showed up. I was worried about how much she was staring at him. One day she comes on the bus and says, Chris asked me out, dude. And I nodded, but I also died inside because I was in love with her. Chris was all the things I couldn't be. It was like one of the guys from my collage had stepped off my bedroom wall and into my gym class. Chris was a brooding badass. Tall, white. He always had a moody look on his clean, boyish face. He was dangerous, but approachable. Like Sean Penn in At Close Range. A line wire kid in a dead-end town. You have a really nice smile. Thanks. I hate that I read this much into Chris Berkeley, but I had to study him to know exactly what Annie was seeing. The brooding thing I could do, all you have to do is furrow your brow while staring off to nowhere in particular, and if anyone asks you what you're thinking about, you just say, existence, man. Easy. But the tall, boyish frame was not something my father handed down to me. One day, we're in the locker room after gym class, and Chris comes out of the shower. Now, I'd seen him come out of the shower before, but this was the first time I inspected him. And I say to myself, he doesn't have any body hair. And I looked around the locker room, and no one had any hair. And then I looked at me. Five o'clock shadow, my torso looked like a rug, my groin was a Brillo pad, I was a Chia pet. Thanks, Dad. Annie and Chris dated for a year, and when they broke up, she dated another guy, and then another guy, and another, and I waited and waited and nodded for two years. Finally, we're a few months from graduating high school. One day, Annie calls me and says, come over, I want to talk to you about something. I get over there, she lights up a joint and passes it to me and says, I have a crush on my best friend. So I said, Who's your best friend? And then she kisses me. 
This is the best day of my life. And then I realize this means that eventually Annie and I are gonna have sex. And my body wasn't up to inspection. When I got home, I went into my room and stared at my wall at the dozens of men with their snarls and oxfords and smooth angular bodies. I thought of my dad and his jungle of arm hair and pubes. And then my eyes shifted gradually away from the wall and over to the shaving kit. So I took my dad's electric razor into the bathroom. I stared at myself in the mirror. I'd never wondered about my dad's early dating life until this point. What the hell would he have done if the girl of his dreams came into his life? I wished I could run into my parents' room and ask him. Instead, my head was full of stuff I'd read in Esquire. Don't show that you're nervous. Make sure you wear Old Spice cologne. Go with Trojan brand. Mark stood there, the old man's electric razor in his hand, his chest a cluster of coarse, dark hair. It was the first moment of his life when he had to decide what kind of man he wanted to be. Did he want to be the kind who speaks with a calm, even tone? The kind who puts a crown on his handshakes and gives operatic hugs? Or did he want to be the kind that mouth snarls his way through dance montages, presumably while wearing loafers with no socks? Mark stared at his reflection for a long, long time. And then I gave myself a treasure trail. A couple of days later, Annie calls me and says, My mom's out of town. You're coming over on Friday. And I knew this was going to be the night. I took us to a fancy Brazilian restaurant called The Grill from Empanema. We get to her place. I put on some Teddy Pendergrass, light some Nag Champa. We undress. She invites me into bed. And we have sex. We're there looking at each other, feeling our bodies. And it's so sweet and nervous, but tender. No girl had ever seen my naked body before. At one point, she brings my head in close to her ear and whispers, Do you shave your stomach? I said, No, I don't. I don't. And I stay up obsessing over it. Because this can't happen again. And it doesn't, because the next time I see Annie, she lights up a joint and says, this isn't working for me. And she ends it. After the break, our hirsute hero goes to college. Welcome back to the show. When we last left Mark, he and his treasure trail had just been unceremoniously dumped by his high school crush, Annie. He recovered from the heartbreak enough to graduate high school, hoping for a fresh start that fall. My freshman year of college was spent at a school named Robert Morris College. It's okay if you don't know it. I hadn't. But that's where you end up when your grades suck. It was in an area outside of Pittsburgh called Moon Township. 
They put me in Adams Hall, this athletic dorm. I was nervous, but also delighted at living around a group of guys. It was an opportunity to continue my research, to watch how they interacted with each other and the world. They all knew each other, they all played football and wrestling, and they all had smooth white chests. I knew I couldn't be exactly like them, but I thought I had a chance of being the exotic guy on campus. The brooding Sean Penn thing wasn't working as well as I'd hoped, so I jumped into bigger pants and was a raver at this point, which meant a lot of metal beaded necklaces, neon wraparound alien shades, a rotating roster of club attire. Maybe these Western Pennsylvania girls would see me and say, who's the European guy? Well, the girls didn't find me exotic, but the jocks did. They would come into the bathroom when I was shaving and see my face and my chest and my arms and just stare at me. And they all asked me the same thing. Are you Italian? Nick Valentine was one of the only guys who wasn't a jock, wasn't from the area, and so we became friends. I went over to Nick's room one day and the door was open there was this guy that wasn't Nick standing there. And I asked, hey, is Nick around? And dude turns around. He's wearing cuffed jeans, loafers, a flannel shirt with the sleeves ripped off completely open. And he's got a big razor in his hand because he was shaving his chest. He said, nope, I'm his new roommate, Dan. And from then on, Dan was in our lives. And it wasn't easy. We'd be at a party where we were actually talking to girls, and it'd be done in seconds because Dan called them skanks. And then the guys would throw us out of the party because Dan said they were a bunch of pansies. The only time we got relief were weeknights when Dan worked. He had a few evening shifts during the week because Dan was a stripper. Which I found pretty confusing. He worked at a club near the Pittsburgh airport called Mustangs, and he was really proud of it. I've never known an exotic dancer before, but I thought you needed to be fit. And simply, Dan wasn't. As the months went on, Mark would stand in the bathroom at Robert Morris College, staring at his reflection, and think, if even Dan, Harry Dan, Sleeveless flannel and loafers Dan, gross Dan, can get on stage and make women shout, deliver. What on earth am I doing wrong? As it turned out, Dan was spending so much time at Mustangs that his grades started to drop. And one day in the cafeteria, Nick told Mark that Dan had moved home to regain his focus. Nick also said that Dan wanted him and Mark to come hang out at the family house for the weekend. And that he'd promised Dan they would. And I was like, are you kidding me? You ruined my weekend. I had nothing planned, but do you know what this is going to be like? Mark actually spent most of his weekends without plans. Or rather, he always had the same plan. Mark, Nick, and Dan would go from party to party trying and failing to meet girls. Every weekend, they convinced themselves that this was going to be the weekend where everything changed. But it never did. 
In Mark's mind, this was largely Dan's fault. So Dan's house was the last place Mark wanted to spend the weekend. I always imagined Dan's place to be the kind of house you'd see from the side of the road and say, that's where crystal meth was born. A beaten down shack with the ricketyest front porch, a dying dog, and a toothless alcoholic father dripping chewing tobacco. We drive up on Saturday, and the ride through western Pennsylvania is beautiful. We get to this house, and I say to Nick, this can't be Dan's house. This is a Country Time Lemonade ad. Not only was the house standing, but it was huge. And on the most amount of land I'd ever seen bathed in amber sunlight and rolling Appalachian hills, even the sun seemed to go, hi. And the front door of the house opens, and this man walks out who looks like John Denver. He smiles and shakes our hand, and it's Dan's dad. Something softened in me when I saw an older, wrinklier, non-striptease version of Dan. Maybe I was projecting. But to see this man acknowledge Dan just by standing with his friends and watching his son explain how much friggin' beer he bought was very peaceful. My dad helped me make campaign signs when I ran for school president in fifth grade. He did all the work, honestly. But the way the kids looked at my father, me, and my badass signs, man, that's a hell of a feeling. I'd forgotten about it until I saw all of this and the camping site Dan and his dad had built for us. They have so much land, they cleared out a patch of woods. And I'm like, yeah, let's camp. Nick and I follow Dan out there. We set a fire, have some beers, chat, and it's amazing. A couple of hours later, voices emerge from the woods, and these five bodies circle us. They got on Carhartt overalls, trucker caps, their nursing tall boys, and skull-chewing tobacco. It's Dan's brother Paul with his buddies. Paul steps up and asks, which one of yin's got that faggot car out there? And I look at Nick because his car was the only one out there. Nick says, I'm driving a Volkswagen. Paul says, move it. It's blocking my truck. And Nick moves it back to Pittsburgh. This was a textbook Nick move. He was a nervous guy, and his tendency was to disappear when things got awkward. Normally, it was pathetic in an endearing sort of way. But on this particular occasion, it was Mark's worst nightmare. Because now he was stuck in the woods with Dan and Paul. And with Nick gone, Paul and his buddies set their sights on Mark. In fairness to them, I was an easy target because I had decided to wear my rave clothes to go camping, which meant wide leg jeans, an oversized polo sport shirt, and boots with stacked heels. But then, they lock in on Dan. It feels like hours of, come on, fat boy, give us a lap dance. You got change for a dollar. I was embarrassed for him, and honestly, a little scared. I just want them to disappear. After they finish our beer, they head into town to a watering hole. It's just Dan and I by the fire, and I don't want to talk. 
I just want some outdoor chill before going to sleep. I look over. Dan is crying. I ask, what's wrong? I'm no stripper. I said, man, don't worry about what those idiots think. No offense, but your brother's an asshole. Dan says, no, I'm not a stripper. I'm security. I said, dude, being security is badass at a strip club. People are intimidated by you. And he said, no, I clean the bathrooms. Even though Dan grew up with a loving, present John Denver dad who encouraged and supported him, Dan was a total mess. And in this moment, when he was so deeply confused and vulnerable, all he needed to hear from his only friend Mark was that everything was going to be okay. That maybe Dan should stop trying so hard to convince people he was a stripper and just be sleeveless flannel and loafers Dan. But that's not what Mark told Dan. Instead, he leaned over, he put his arm around Dan's shoulder, and said, Dan, there are so many ways to get into stripping. This has got to be one of them. I mean, you got your foot in the door, and I'm going on and on and pulling stuff out of my ass. After a while, I gave up, and we just sat there until he stopped crying. Then he threw up. Then he went to sleep. That night at the camp, I stayed up a little longer to see some stars. And when we woke up, it was like it never happened. We packed up the campsite, drove back in silence, and it was only a few more weeks of semester, and Dan never got his grades up, and he left. And I never saw him again. At the end of the semester, I moved my car back to Maryland. Mark needed another fresh start. He moved back into his mom's house and started taking classes at the local community college. He'd come home at night feeling lost and adrift, and he'd ask his mom to tell him stories about his dad. Maybe his dad had been through a period like this too, and maybe his experience could offer Mark some clues. And his mom told him that Mark's dad had spent his early 20s in the military, living on bases in Korea, Germany, and Latin America. She told Mark that his father used to say that this was the time when he made his transition from boy to man. And so Mark hatched a plan. As soon as he got enough credits to graduate, he was gonna travel to Latin America too, I was going to spend a few years traveling, mastering my father's language, and become an expert at something, like filmmaking. I was finally going to make my long, gestating gangster melodrama called The Snowmen, starring Sean Penn and Mr. Belvedere. Or I was going to thrive off of blackjack winnings. But in the meantime, Mark wasn't doing much besides shuffling back and forth from class to class, smoking Marlboro Lights. And one day, a tall woman 
with a French accent, asked if she could bum a cigarette. Her name was Sabine. They got to talking. Soon they were planning their smoke breaks at the same time. Then they were planning more than smoke breaks together. One day, they looked up and they were in love. After a month, Sabine asks me if I'd consider moving up to Montreal with her. I said yes, and found a film studies program at Concordia University where I transferred my credits and we moved away from Maryland together. It wasn't the same thing as the Blackjack Diaries of Latin America I had dreamt up in my head, but it felt perfect. Except for one thing. I hadn't had a girlfriend since Annie. I didn't want to feel humiliated again. And Sabine and I were doing great, but we always had sex with the lights off. And I always kept my shirt on. I'm reading the Montreal Gazette one day, and I come across this ad in the back with a phone number and one word, electrolysis. And that's how I met Marco. Marco was the kind of guy who Dan the Stripper wished he looked like. He was a handsome, muscular gay man with remarkably hairless arms. He'd turned his living room into a salon, and that's where I'd go every week for this procedure. I didn't know much about it, but electrolysis is a gradual removal process where an electrified needle is placed in each follicle you want to remove, one by one. This was a long way from my dad's shaving kit. And the sessions took a really, really long time. It wasn't going to be easy. It was going to be very expensive and take one session every week for three years. But it'd be totally worth it. Once complete, I'd finally have the McKinsey Aston bod I'd always dreamed of. I could stroll through locker rooms with a towel around my waist saying, looking good, Charlie, assuming there's a Charlie in every locker room. I could take my shirt off at the beach. I could stop worrying that every time I turned the lights off before getting into bed with Sabine, she was gonna turn them back on and shout, why do you always do this? What's wrong with your body? Marco didn't speak English very well. And I didn't speak French very well. So the only sound in the room was the infernal panpipe music playing from Marco's laptop. After a few weeks, I couldn't take it. So I asked, do you have other music? He said, yeah, but um, I don't think you know it. And he puts it on and I say, yeah. That's Crystal Waters. He asked, How do you know Crystal Waters? I said, Dude, I grew up with women, and I had no control over the radio or the TV. This is my Jeopardy. What else you got? Marco would play a song, and I'd respond, Robin S., show me love. Finally, CeCe Peniston. Thelma Houston, don't leave me this way. And I'd bring him in mixes, and he'd make me mixes, and we started talking, like, really talking. He'd ask me questions like, where did you get this hair because you don't look American? 
and I'd say, I know, it's because my mom's white and my dad's Latino and I get it from his side. And then Marco would talk about what it was like to come out to his conservative father and the disappointment of not fitting into his dad's projected image of him. Besides the physical pain of a needle going into my skin every week, this was incredibly comforting. I think this is what I always wanted to happen in the locker room in high school. A chance to talk with another male about feelings. Just a moment when a guy sees me take my shirt off and goes, you look European. And also, I have a complicated relationship with my father's legacy. Sabine had no idea any of this was going on. I was coming home every week. I was feeling good. We were feeling good. This went on for almost two years. When college was ending, I decided to move to New York because I didn't have a visa to stay in Canada. Sabine and I decided to give the long distance thing a go. That week I went into Marco's and told him that I was moving and next week will probably be my last session. He doesn't say anything. But during the session he pauses. He said, Mark, I want to share something with you. And this is when I remembered that I had never told Marco I had a girlfriend. Never mind the fact that Marco knew more about me and my feelings than Sabine did. It's not that I wanted to lead him on. I was just afraid that if I talked to him about having a girlfriend, it might ruin my first male friendship in Montreal. Something I didn't realize until that moment. So I asked, what is it, Marco? And Marco says, I make music. And I said, okay. Marco had bought a program to make electronic music on his laptop and was spending weekends secretly making beats. He took a CD out from his desk drawer and said, I made a copy of it and I wanted you to take it home and listen to it. And let me know what you honestly think. Mark, honestly. Yeah, 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 of course, of course. So I went home. And for some reason, on this particular night, Sabine asked me where I'd been. For nearly two years, I'd been using the class alibi. But school was over. I could have come up with anything. But I was like, screw it. So I said... There's something I need to tell you. And I told her I'd been seeing this beautician named Marco for two years. Sabine was oddly unresponsive. But she didn't gasp or run out the door like I thought she would. And I felt emboldened. So I kept opening up. I told her about how Marco and I had the same taste in music, how we talked about our dads, and how she should totally come and meet him during my final appointment. She reluctantly agreed. We made dinner and listened to the CD that Marco gave me, and it was awful. Disjointed beats, shitty keyboard, and vocals. Marco had recorded himself saying over and over and over again, Devoured the mind. Devoured the mind. Devoured the mind. 
devour the mind, devour the mind, devour the mind. A week later, we're standing in front of his house. The door opens, and I say, Marco, this is my girlfriend, Sabine. Sabine, this is Marco. He just stares at us. Uh, I don't have guests during treatment, but you can sit on this couch while I meet with Mark. Sabine sits down. I go into the back room with Marco. I sit down, and he goes to the computer and turns on panpipe music. And nothing is spoken until the hour is up when Marco says, we're done. At the door, I asked Sabine to wait for me by the metro station so that Marco and I could have a moment alone. I said, Marco, I listened to the CD. It's really good. He said, yeah? And I nodded. Yeah. You need to keep making more music. And we stood there for what felt like hours. He grabbed me and pulled me in for a hug. And it was a really good hug. And so our hero, still a little fuzzy, but closer than ever to achieving his hairless dreams, kissed Sabine goodbye and moved his car yet again, this time to New York. He found a laser hair removal salon in the East Village where he met a stern beautician named Svetlana. She took one look at me and said, Yeah, I can change you. Their relationship was less cordial than the one with Marco, but no matter. For a few months, Mark glided through life in the Big Apple. Literally and figuratively, things were finally going smoothly. And then Sabine called and told Mark she'd met someone else. I was walking the streets of New York and standing in grocery store aisles looking at boxes of wheat thins, literally moaning. After the break, our hero's moans are answered once and for all. When we last left Mark, he was heartbroken at the grocery store. At this point, crying, overeating wheat thins, and chain smoking were my sole activities, often all at the same time. I felt useless. And I'd never seen a man, besides Dan, cry like this. Except in movies. Like when Captain Kirk had to speak at Spock's funeral in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Of all the souls I have encountered in my travels, his was the most. But then one night, between my snacking and cigarette breaks, I remembered another time from real life. It was the night my dad died back when I was 14. We were home, and my dad's business partner, Mike, was talking about arrangements, and he lost it. My sister Lydia and I looked at each other, and Mike just struggled and tried to hide it. In hindsight, I was in shock the whole evening and for a long time afterwards. At the time, I was thinking... What the hell is wrong with me? I'm not crying, not hysterical. Mike was feeling the loss of someone who meant something to him. And part of me was like, 
What did my dad mean to me? All of Mark's wandering had only left him more lost. He would sit, slumped in his chair at his day job, aimlessly scouring the internet for answers. Something, anything, to fill the hollowness he felt. I didn't know why Sabine had left me. I didn't know why I'd moved to New York, and I didn't know what to do to answer either of these questions. I felt empty. At some point, he convinced himself that the problem must be the hair removal treatments with Svetlana. They weren't good enough. He needed to do more. I thought, maybe Sabine left me because I'm too short. So I started looking into leg extension surgery. It was getting bad. Eventually, Mark got to the point where he was just cycling back and forth between three browser tabs. Experimental hair removal treatments, leg extension surgery providers, and IMDB, where he would vanish for hours at a time down various muscular, chin-dimpled rabbit holes, scrolling through the filmographies of the men whose images he longed so deeply to emulate. And one day, I saw the trailer to the Motorcycle Diaries. Before the world knew his name, Ernesto Che Guevara and his friend Alberto took the journey of their lives. I'd always wondered about my dad's life in Latin America. After so many stories from my mom about his military adventures and with so many misadventures of my own in the States, I started to think, maybe the answers are in Spanish. I never had the chance to speak to my father in his language, and I always wanted to prove to myself that I could. An adventure in search of South America. It's not like I thought I was going to become Che Guevara. Okay, maybe a little. There was something so magnetic about the guy playing Guevara, Gael Garcia Bernal. He was short, like me. He had scruff that clung to his chin. And there was a sense of purpose in his eyes. He was passionate, but approachable. They're on a road to forget who they were and discover who they are. I opened a new tab and looked up service organizations in South America. The first thing I found was an organization in Chile that began at an orphanage called Hogar Esperanza. It had just launched, and they were looking for volunteers. So I finally did it. I finished the last box of wheat thins, threw some things in a bag, and left for Latin America. During our first group vacation, all the employees and volunteers of Hogar Esperanza had this big party at a beach a few hours from Santiago. I knew the drill. We'd be taking our shirts off to go in the water, and I'd have to get my body ready for beach presentation. So I woke up early that morning, went in the bathroom, and gave myself a treasure trail. We get to the beach, and as is custom, all the guys take their shirts off. And I look around, and all of them had tons of body hair. Chest hair, back hair, it was everywhere. It was like my high school locker room peers had been dipped in glue and a fan had blown fur on them. They were hairy guys, and none of them seemed to care. 
And that wasn't the only thing I admired about these men. I was really impressed with the way they effortlessly moved back and forth between Spanish and English. It reminded me of the way my dad spoke, where he would gently move his hands to emphasize the points he wanted to make. I started emulating him in my conversations with my new friends. And for the first time in my life, instead of resenting the parts of me that looked like him, I felt grateful for the parts of me that felt like him. So eventually we have our first staff meeting at Hogar Esperanza, and we meet the founder, Jose Vargas. And I have this unexpected reaction to him. Jose wasn't this idol in the classic bedroom wall poster mold. He was average height, slightly balding, and actually pretty furry, like me. He sort of looked like my family. Standing next to him, he could have been my dad. It was like calmly looking at a picture on my wall and thinking, that look is totally not out of reach. Beyond his appearance, I found his presence intoxicating. He addresses the room full of volunteers with this kind of quiet, focused energy. He expresses genuine gratitude for our work. He's wearing this pressed blue shirt, pretty conservative, but the top two buttons are open, approachably classy. After the meeting, he comes up to me and he shakes my hand. He crowns our handshake just like my dad. And as he talks to me, he looks into my eyes intently, resting a hand gently on my shoulder. Mark, you're new to Santiago, correct? Please, let me know if there's anything I can do to help you. I'm a little speechless. There's a lot I want to say, like, uh, would you like a son? But all I can manage to say is, um, could you give me a ride home? Jose's car is a clean black VW Golf with a standard transmission. I watch his loafers work the clutch and the back of his hand covered with a wispy crop of thin dark hair as it confidently maneuvers the gear shift. As we drove through the streets of Santiago, he would gently wave at the bustling sidewalks and talk about how fulfilling it was to know that his orphanage was providing shelter for the children of the city he loved so dearly. We talked here and there. He asked questions like, how many sisters do you have? Where did you get that crazy beanie? Did it hurt to get a nose ring? Do you like spicy food? My father was the same way. The reason friends remembered him, the reason why Mike was crying so hard the night that he died, the real reason I wanted to live with him, he made me feel respected and safe. And he gave great hugs. Every time Jose put his hand on my shoulder, I never wanted him to take it off. Mark stayed in Chile for nine months, and then he moved on to Bolivia, Colombia, and Peru. He never got on a motorcycle, but he kept his legs the same length they've always been, and over time, he stopped getting hair removed. 
Eventually, he came back to New York and continued working at community-based organizations, the same work he does to this day. A little while after he got back to the States, more than a decade after that first mirror consultation, the one that resulted in the first of many ill-fated treasure trails, Mark once again came face to face with himself. I came out of the shower and was shaving underneath my neck, and I said, Carajo, do I have some salt and pepper in my beard? A few white hairs stood out in a sea of black. A few months later, it was a sizable population. And soon, my hairline started receding, and the forehead I once knew as a small nation of visible skin soon extended into larger territories on my head. Now, if you had told me at 15, Mark, you're going to start graying and balding in your early 30s, I would have passed out. But I looked at all these changes, and I was like, yeah, gane esto, which means I earn this. I think it does, actually. I'm still working on my Spanish. After all those years of getting hair ripped out with wax, electrolysis, and lasers, as soon as Mark accepted himself, the hair started to fall away all on its own. The only person I shared this stuff with was my mom. One day, I call her to tell her about a gray nose hair I found. And she tells me she's moving. My mom had remarried after my dad died and lived in the same house for nearly 20 years. They were downsizing to a condo, and she wanted to see if I wanted things she was finding. You want these sneakers? No. You want these Punisher comics? No. And then she calls me and says, I found something that I don't know if you read. It's from your father. I'm going to scan it and send it to you. And this is what it said. Dear Dear Mark David, This is very true and from the bottom of my heart, my son. The age of 14 is very important because you start growing a mustache. Girls start looking as women and not as girls. And there is a tendency to be lazy at that age because growth is speeded up. We also begin to believe we know more than our parents at that age. But those who can overcome the obstacles of that wonderful age think, where do I want to be 14 years from now? Once that question is answered in your mind, you set your sights on that objective, and without wavering, let your own wings, your own effort, work, and perseverance take you there. Remember, failure is there at every turn of your life, lurking like a vulture to eat from the body and soul of those who are victims of apathy, idleness, timidity, and lack of courage. Did you think you could get away without a lecture from your dad on your birthday? No way. I love you too much, my son. Dad. P.S. You may have my turntable. I called my mom back, and we cried and talked about it. She said, I found boxes of pictures. You're welcome to any of them. 
and I went through these old photos of my dad. Pictures I'd never seen, him as a kid, us as a family. My dad lounging at the beach and pool in a swimsuit, no shirt. And he did not have any body hair. I was thinking, no, maybe these pictures are faded. I called my mom and said, do you remember dad being hairy? She said, no, not really. Then where did I get this from? She said, oh, I think you get that from my side. Devoured the mind. 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 Family Ghosts is hosted and produced by me, Sam Dingman, with Verilyn Williams, Odelia Rubin, and Jason DeLeon. Our story editor is Michaela Bly. Our show features original music by Luis Guerra, and our show art is by Paul Glankler. Our managing producer is Mia Lobel, and Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. Special thanks to Mark's mom, Hazel Jean Pagan Bullock, Carlos Linares, who played the role of Mark's dad, Heidi Rosby, and Evan Viola for De Power of Demind, the remix. And thank you also to Jennifer Trowbridge and Lily Tyson. Learn more about our show at our new website, familyghosts.panoply.fm. You'll find links to our Twitter, Instagram, our mailing list, the ghost post, as well as our episode archives and lots more about the show. You can also email us at familyghosts@panoply.fm. And finally, thank you so much to all of you who've left us a review in Apple Podcasts. If you're enjoying our show and you have not yet left a review, please do it. It has a huge impact on the Apple Podcast charts, and the longer our show stays on those charts, the more new people can find our work. Thank you for listening, Ghost Family. See you next week on Family Ghosts, where every house is haunted. Next time on Family Ghosts. Michaela grew up with the story of her grandmother's daring escape from Auschwitz. They were marching inmates away from the camps. They were passing a lot of farms, and she walked into a barn, and she hid herself in a big pile of hay. They stuck pitchforks in the hay. The pitchforks didn't hit her. As an adult, Michaela did everything she could to keep her grandmother happy. I made a sign for her fridge to remind her what medicine to take when, and it said, one glucosamine, one Prozac, grandma is gorgeous. But can her own life measure up to her grandmother's legacy? When I was 31, I was teaching third grade and dating the first grade teacher, Dustin. We were the Sid and Nancy of our elementary school. We were the reason there was an alcohol reminder before school functions. Michaela's quest to live her own form of history, next week on the show.